0: なんだ<音楽><溢れるサタヌとネオンの前行大人の女と子供の男音楽>
1: Good morning and welcome to Out of the Blue on Sunday, 26th of August 2018. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855 on your AM dial, or you can have a listen from our website, www.3cr.org.au forward slash Radio Blue, where you'll also find a number of previously broadcast episodes that have been uploaded as podcasts. My name is Andrew Christie from Melbourne Polytechnic and Marine Care Point Cook, and today's weather are uh, beautiful in the fair city of Melbourne today, a top of 16 degrees. We're going got a 70% chance of showers later in the evening, winds coming in from the southwest at noon at around uh, 15 to 25 kilometres an hour, and just stiffening a little bit towards the evening, getting up to about 30 kilometres an hour. So as usual, be careful if you're out uh, and about on our beautiful waterways in the state of Victoria, and indeed in Melbourne, the uh, demoted to the second most livable city in the world during the week. Okay, um, today in the studio we've got a terrific show lined up. I'm joined by John Lewis, who is the Principal Marine Consultant for ESLI. Link Services, whose slogan is linking sustainable economic returns with environmental and social outcomes. John, welcome to Out of the Blue. Thank you, Andrew, and I'm very pleased to be here. Terrific. Thanks very much for coming into the studio. Okay, today we'll be discussing a number of items with John, including his uh, life story in a nutshell. He's had a very interesting life in the marine biology spaces and uh, talk about uh, marine pests and things like biofouling as well. So we'll come back to John and get into the interview straight after this brief message. Estás sintonizando 3CR... Think of Thinko, let three CR, AM,
0: Kinda weave day TCR. song AM, Tam Nam Nam. Kinma weave have a three CR AM.
1: Each week. 3CR broadcasts over 130 programs in 25 languages supporting communities and viewpoints that you just don't hear about anywhere else. Subscribe to your award-winning multilingual community radio station, 3CR, and help keep these voices on the airwaves. Call the station on 94198377. The number is again 94198377. You're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio, 8.55am. So, uh, John, for the benefit of our listeners, can you give us uh, tell us a bit about your journey into becoming a, uh, a marine consultant in the line of work that you're into today? Well, thanks, Andrew. Well, it was actually, it wasn't a
0: directed journey. It was something that was more by chance and almost a drifter. Um, although spending all my summer holidays at Point Lonsdale um, as a, a child and into my youth, Um, The marine side hadn't really grabbed me, and I headed off to university, and it looked like I'd be a chemist or a physicist, but um, in second year, I got a little bit disillusioned with chemistry. I had gone down the path of zoology and almost became a forester, but I took up a particular unit on non-flowering plants in botany, and Dr. Sophie Ducker at the time um, really triggered my interest in, in marine plants and seaweeds. That led into uh, studying third-year units in both marine phy- phytoplankton and the benthic algae. At the time, Dr. Jerry Craft, the esteemed Jerry, arrived and he caught me. Well and truly, and I went on to do honours and masters with Jerry, uh, working with um, macroalgae and macroalgal ecology. Excellent. So it, it just led on
1: from there. Triggered that interest. So just out of interest with um, what uh, Sophie and Jerry were doing, what was it about their, their teaching style or methods that really grabbed you and sort of dragged you into this world of uh, aquatic botany? Well,
0: with Sophie, we had our field um, excursions down to Point Lonsdale And at that stage, she actually had this little um, weatherboard building just below the Point Lonsdale Lighthouse, which opens out onto the rip. And she'd managed to commandeer that as her field lab. And so there we were, we'd go along the beach, we'd collect all the caelerpas and bring them in and identify them with the looking out over the rip. And then Jerry arrived and his speciality, Sophie was very much into coralline algae and the green algae. Well, Jerry was very much reds and reds was an area that um, the diversity in southern Australia is immense Wow. and there is so much still to be done in that area and he actually uh, sort of caught me up in that whole idea of algal ecology and, and taxonomy um, and we're also doing the, some of the diving just off Williamstown which no one had really looked there at um, previously. So right. we started to turn up new things, um, the, the first sort of non-indigenous species we found out there. And that also got me into the um, area of biofound because I was actually my study site was the old Jellybrand Lighthouse.
1: Right. Um, Oh, yeah. very good, very good. What a beautiful part of the world, uh, you're talking about your childhood there, Point Lonsdale. Yeah. That's, a, that's no wonder that it's sort of got you fascinated in the whole marine area.
0: Yes, yeah, no, it's, it's a wonderful little place and uh, it's still something I, I have a, quite a bond to, although uh, I've moved in the other direction and live up at Castlemaine now and appreciate the rural life and the, the country life up there.
1: Right. Um, no one near as frantic as uh, Point Lonsdale over the summer. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> So the, uh, the red algae you mentioned before, are we one of the most diverse places in the world for that side of things? We
0: certainly are. Um, the southern coast of Australia, uh, just through the evolutionary history, uh, has ended up that it's been a real centre for um, biodiversity and evolution of biodiversity in the reds. Uh, what is also unusual in our southern coastline is the number of calerpas we have, uh, which is essentially a tropical genus but because of the history um, we've really developed the combination of diverse greens but certainly the reds far
1: outnumber everything else. Wow Yeah, excellent, excellent. So as far as the... um, There's one... uh, What we might do, I might just take it in the direction of one of the species, the red algae, which is sort of a hot topic at the moment for us out at uh, Point Cook Marine Sanctuary and and indeed in uh, in Jawbone Marine Sanctuary right throughout northern Port Phillip Bay. We've had this interesting... invasive marine pest species, Gratilupia turuturu, um, that's turned up and seems to be an invader from uh, from Japan. And in fact, um, for the benefit of our listeners, uh, only today I gave John some samples of some uh, some Gratilupia that we found out at Point Cook Marine Sanctuary. So, number one, he can positively identify it because it does... What's the species, John, that it looks quite similar to, the Gratilupia? There
0: There is a, a rhodoglossum species that, that is quite similar. And, and in many... Instances. The only way you can tell them apart is actually taking a small piece, cutting a transverse section, and putting it under the microscope. Wow, they are they are very similar in appearance, slipperiness, size, shape. Oh gee. Uh, so, and with which the rhodoglossum is a, is a native species. Yes,
1: yeah. yeah, and this is one of the things that, um, as uh, as president of the uh, the Marine Friends Group, uh, Marine Care Point Cook, this is one thing that I'm really trying to impress upon uh, upon people when they're looking for marine pests. It's all well and good to have your heart in the right place and try and rip them out of an ecosystem. But of course, the very first thing you've got to do is make sure that you are actually mm-hmm. taking out the prime yes. suspect and not some uh, innocent bystanders along the way. So they'll be very interested to see what uh, what you come back with as mm-hmm. far as that uh, uh, that identification goes. So Japanese slippery weed was something that we found during the uh, the Two Bays research cruise when we were on board the MV Pelican, which is, uh, uh, lives most of its life as a research catamaran. And uh, we dropped anchor one day in Point Cook Marine Sanctuary and I think from memory we had uh, Jan Carey on board, who was the aquatic botanist from Melbourne Uni, and she took a look at this thing and thought, "Geez, that looks like um, the invasive marine pest species. Uh, and sure enough, she was correct. And it seems to have really started to exert a strong foothold through the uh, the, the intertidal and shallow subtidal regions of, uh, of Point Cook Marine Sanctuary, which has been quite interesting. It's uh, the, the one thing we haven't done is take out the, um, uh, get the transects going, get the quadrats out and really start you know, trying to determine and sort of uh, percentage cover and abundance of this stuff. Uh, can you give us a bit of an outline on what, um, a few things, on what Gratilupia uh, actually is and um, what you think its capacity is to be invasive and how much of a problem you think it could be in uh, in northern Port Phillip Bay? Well, Gratilupia is a red, red alga.
0: Um, it's in a group which is quite unique in that the way they reproduce, um, they essentially only need one fertilisation to pr- produce um, spores through their whole life. And they can also generate very quickly from a basal disc. So they grow quite, as, as the spores germinate, they, they grow a basal disc. And you can chop the fronds off and it'll keep growing new fronds. Now, the way Gratalupia has been spread around the world... Um, Initially, this Tura Tura, they thought it was a South American species and had been introduced into the Mediterranean Sea. Right. Um, And at that stage, a lot of species were introduced to the Mediterranean, carried in with Pacific oysters. They used to ship live oysters from Japan to Europe. And some of them, they actually used to pack them in seaweed. So there is another species, Sargassum muticum, that's spread right through the Mediterranean, which actually came from this packing. But a lot of other things with these basal crusts, and a codium is the same, they got shipped with the oysters and spread. Of course, it can also grow on boats. Um, Now, in Australia, uh, we first detected it in Bishno, in Tasmania, in Tassie, yeah, and this was um, Gary Saunders uh, came across from the from Canada, and he identified it genetically. Um, when we went out, and the Tasmanian government did surveys, it was virtually right down the coast of Tasmania. Wow! But the interesting thing is that Bicheno was a place where they set up oyster farming so we believe it may have come in the same way and then possibly you'll see it growing on small boats. I've collected it around the waterline of a tug so the spread up to Port Phillip Bay is, is most likely on small vessels.
1: There you go. It's really interesting you mentioned that packing thing. I have read a paper on the on the Gratilupia turuturu where they um, they mentioned that if you have it in a... Uh, they had some small, relatively fledgling, um, recirculating aquaculture systems mm-hmm. for uh, culturing abalone. Yes. And they found that when they put the Gradilupia in the water with the abalone, mm-hmm. in, in that recirculating aquaculture system, it kept the uh, numbers of... Uh, the the viability of Vibrio bacteria Mm -hmm. right down through the floor and Vibrio for those who don't know it's um, a very diverse bacterial genus Uh, things like cholera are part of the Vibrio family Um, but uh, the uh, the bacteria are dynamite and really cause enormous harm amongst the abalone Mm -hmm. so they were finding that it got the uh, basically got the Vibrios into a non-culturable state which meant Mm -hmm. the numbers were through the floors quite amazing almost antibiotic properties Mm -hmm. of this uh, seaweed That's really quite interesting because when we
0: think about biofouling, and we think about things growing on ships and boats and piles but any plant or animal in the sea faces the same attack and yeah. so many of them have that sort of mechanism to be able to prevent things growing on their surface so yeah, and right. they constantly generate secondary metabolites or their slimy surfaces or low surface energy so um, what you've what is seen with Grataloupia is similar to some work Peter Steinberg did at the University of New South Wales, where he and Rocky Denise actually isolated something from a red alga up there, right. which has shown p- potential in controlling um, microbes. And they've moved actually into the biomedical area as the possibility of using it for um, uh, preventing bacterial uh, secondary sort of colonisation
1: in implants. There you go. It's amazing when you get into it. It's a very small world. Um, We've got a a major barramundi farm out at uh, Werribee, uh, Mainstream Aquaculture, who are currently going through a very exciting expansion. I think Rocky Denise has done quite a bit of work in in that space. before. He's a pretty Mm. well-known figure in that field. Wow. There you go. It's amazing the number of linkages (laughs) and networks around the place. That's uh, that's really fascinating stuff. Yeah, so um, Japanese slippery weed. Just... um, As as far as, okay, this stuff's at Point Cook now, Um, we've got the Friends group that are looking at it. Um, What's your advice from here, John, with regards to, I mean, is this going to be much of a problem, you think, for the marine sanctuary? Look, I I don't believe so. Uh, Most
0: of the species that come in tend to be accommodated within a community. And I was talking to Andrew before and said that my actual honours work was on a related species, which is a Gratilupia as well, which at the time we thought was an Australian native, Gratilupia phyllicina, first identified in Australia in Sydney in the early 1800s, uh, early 1900s. Um, We've since found that it's actually a Japanese species. Now, it was quite abundant down off Williamstown in the Gloucester Reserve area, and Generally, what happens with invasive species and species in general, they move from areas of high biodiversity to low. So if there's a vacant niche, they'll move in. But in most instances, unless there's some continual artificial disturbance, they will be accommodated within that uh, community and can actually contribute to increased biodiversity. By providing food, or or just being part of that um, algal community, but generally in a stable community, they will. Um the invasives or the introduced species really don't displace any species. They just fit in.
1: Yeah, right. And that's interesting, uh, really interesting point. This is the thing we've been wrestling with for quite uh, some time at um, at Marine Care Point Cook and discussing it with uh, Parks Victoria. When we have a situation like uh, Grataloopy getting in, it's, uh, it hasn't caused us too much consternation right at the moment. The one that's probably got quite a bit of, um, uh, had quite a bit of emphasis on it over the years is Undaria, um, Undaria pinnative the uh, Japanese kelp or wakami um, that stuff seems to grow quite uh, explosively at times at Point Cook Marine Sanctuary but the issue we have is that it's uh, it's one of those things where we've got such pervasive, such significant urchin barrens forming at the moment it's one of the very few macroalgae that actually seems to be able to to grow so we're looking at it and thinking well some uh, macroalgae is probably a good thing rather than not having any at all growing in these areas so it's uh, it's, it's quite a, um, which way we go on it is quite an interesting uh, interesting uh, topic anyway what we might do is just break it up a little bit we'll go to a uh, a song in a week where uh peter dutton very nearly became prime minister of this country i think uh the, the fact that he missed out might have relieved a few of the the folk here at uh, 3cr community radio um let's have a listen to uh huey lewis and the news with perfect world That was Huey Lewis and the news with Perfect World and that's kind of what it feels like I think after uh, that closure we had as I mentioned that's my personal opinion only I don't normally get too uh, political but you're listening to uh, Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio um, so uh, John back to what we were discussing before about the um, uh, the, the seaweeds we were discussing Gratilupia before and just before we went to the song we were discussing Undaria um, I've heard, since heard it described uh, Peter Crockett was the the author of one of the papers, where uh, Peter Crockett, of course, um, one of our uh, panellists for a long time on Out of the Blue, uh, him and Paul Carnell sort of referred to Undaria as being, uh, the, the terminology they used was ecologically benign, which sort of flies in the face a little bit of, um, of what many would have us believe about what is uh, potentially one of Australia's most invasive um, marine pest species. Can you just give us a, a bit of an outline of your thoughts on, on Undaria pinnatifida and, and what it all Means for us, uh, and Undaria has
0: got. There is a perception of it being a really nasty invader, and it actually appears one of the international um, conservation groups has it listed among the hundred world's worst invaders, covering terrestrial. But Undaria is quite unusual compared to most of our brown seaweeds, and it is an annual, so it it has a microscopic phase which it survives over the summer, but then. In the winter, it just takes off and grows very, very rapidly. And it's very much an opportunist. So it needs space to grow. If you're in an aclonia bed, for instance, there's no room for the Gradilupia, uh, the Undaria, my apologies, to actually establish. So if you disturb that environment, if the urchins come in and take um, the other algae out or the other algae, the, the Undaria will come in and take their place. But what we find since the late 1990s, when Undaria was first found in uh, Port Phillip Bay, it's spread around the northern coast, but the satellite populations are, are all attached to artificial structures. Uh, so, you know, Blairgowrie Pier, Port Arlington Pier. And if there is stability in that community, the Undaria doesn't seem to be able to survive against perennial algae.
1: Right. Right.
0: And it's quite interesting, um, Andrew, you were saying that, is it better have undaria than nothing at all? Now, um, Jan Carey actually had a student looking at this and our native Iclonia and undaria are in the same, they're related. And they differ to a lot of the other kelps in that they have what's called a divided hapteron, their base. So it's like a big complex finger structure. And you have lots of microinvertebrates and things living inside this, this base. So, in some respects, that's providing a little bit of a hidey hole or a niche for these things on these urchin, urchin barrens and yeah. can actually promote the, um, the the establishment of or the maintenance of native species.
1: There you go. And that's one thing. We had a, uh, a student at Melbourne Polytechnic, uh, Paul Liu, who, on for his applied research project subject, he was looking at uh, undaria, and um, we had a grant to look at the removals of undaria from Point Cook Marine Sanctuary. And I was particularly keen after taking only a few... Uh, catch bags of this stuff out of the marine sanctuary you'd put it into these tubs and you'd see what was uh, what was in there and of course it wasn't just undaria area that we were removing there were there were the odd weed fish there was Ostrocochlea, there was a whole bunch of uh, gastropods and amphipod uh, all sorts of stuff in there and that's what we sort of looked at and thought well, gee how much how much collateral damage are we doing here when we go in and rip this stuff out that's a it's a very interesting topic mm. and that's a really interesting um, uh, thing because we've we've of course seen things like everything from flathead and fiddler rays and cuttlefish, clearly grabbing onto it and using it as shelter. Um, but that's a different perspective again. Yeah,
0: and there's a similar situation in Europe where we talked about the Sargassum muticum. Now, in Europe, a lot of the seagrass beds died out. And again, there, they've found that where you've developed a Sargassum muticum bed, it's brought back all the microinvertebrates. And given that, um, uh, community structure and created an ecosystem so they're actually acting as uh, what they call ecological engineers or ecosystem engineers providing a uh, uh a, a place for other
1: things to live yeah, absolutely yes yeah they do have that uh, that yeah that's that's a really interesting uh, really interesting topic um, one that we touched on uh, on very very briefly um, was another one that we've done a little bit of research on Sabella um, uh, um, just off the air before John you mentioned that uh, you know, sort of had a bit of a, um, a, a feel for how pervasive this stuff can be Sabella
0: mm. again a, a lot of these invasive species when they first arrive they have this really boom Boom, and there's lots and lots and lots of them. And everyone fears, you know, the, the collateral damage, but they also tend to be boom and bust. And it appears that sabella has been like this. Um, after it first came in again in the, the mid-90s, it, it covered, I think, a third of the seafloor in Port Phillip Bay, as well as all the artificial structures. But Jan um, Watson has actually said that in the Corio arm, the Sabella is the only substrate, so it provides the substrate for all the native species and weeds and things like that. So, again, a bit like undaria being an ecosystem engineer, well, Sabella in some environments, disturbed environments, has the same effect.
1: Incredible. Okay, well, that's it for uh, Out of the Blue for another week. John, thanks very much for coming into the studio. My pleasure. We'd love to have you back on uh, one one fine day again soon, but um, we'll uh, leave our listeners. Stay tuned for Out of the Pan with Sally and enjoy the rest of your Sunday.